the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. Uh, again, follow us, danproftshow.com, as well as uh, on social media, at Dan Proft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, before we get into the specifics about uh, Trump's tweets about Twitter and uh, some of the uh, statements he made about uh, Joe Scarborough and the tempest and the teapot that's created, I just want to frame this discussion a little bit uh, since we're going to talk about uh, Trump and social media and free expression and the D.C. press corps. And I think uh, Mark Hemingway does a nice job of that in The Federalist. Media's unpublished lies hurt the nation far worse than Trump's indefensible tweets. The indefensible tweets that Hemingway is referring to, of course, relate to Joe Scarborough, who he doesn't defend. He's not defending Scarborough. He makes the point, Scarborough, it's pretty hard to feel bad for a guy whose media presence enabled Trump's political rise to the point he openly flirted with running as his vice president before making a comic heel turn against Trump. In fact, when Scarborough was playing footsie with Trump, left wing blogs were trafficking in the same repugnant conspiracy theory that Trump was promoting yesterday, which is unhelpful, uh, agreed. But I want to put some context around it. Mark Hemingway does that. The grim joke of the 20th century, Stalin's actually. One death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Well, in the 21st century age of information warfare, one man's libel is an outrage. When thousands do it, we call that the news. Zing. He uh, goes through all of those who are aghast at uh, Trump's tweeting about Scarborough and reminds them about Covington Catholic School kid, reminds them about how Trump is portrayed for his sometimes outrageous comments versus how Joe Biden is portrayed with respect to decades of horrifying behavior talking about conspiracy theories. How dare you traffic in conspiracy theories? Well, the entire D.C. press corps and the Democrat establishment did for three years. It was called the Russian collusion investigation, wasn't it? Hemingway writes, is the problem that social media platforms aren't enforcing policies against the president that would get other users banned? Somehow social media platforms have no trouble banning and censoring mainstream conservative outlets to say nothing of how the mere mention of a Chinese propaganda agency causes Google to disappear your comments. The president getting a hall pass isn't going to outrage anyone on Team Trump when you consider how social media platforms are generally perceived as having policies that are inconsistent, unfair and cavalier about censorship. And uh, like the D.C. press corps, always making mistakes in the direction of damage to conservatives. That's the context for Twitter putting a disclaimer on Trump's tweet about uh, mail and balloting leading Trump to tweet in response. Republicans feel that social media platforms today silence, totally silence conservative voices. We strongly, we will strongly regulate or close them down before we can ever allow this to happen. 
We saw what they attempted to do and failed in 2016. We can't let a more sophisticated version of that happen again, just like we can't let large-scale mail-in ballots take root in our country. It would be a free-for-all on cheating, forgery, and the theft of ballots. Whoever cheated the most would win. Likewise, social media. Clean up your act now, all caps, four exclamation points. Mm-hmm. Strongly regulate or close them down. Well, that against this backdrop, going back to Hemingway. Because the argument that you'll get from never Trumpers and the left will be well, talking about the things that Mark Hemingway is bringing up or trying to provide some uh, contextual information here is just all a bunch of flacking for the president or what about ism. Well, to some extent, OK. But uh, as Hemingway writes, remember, Hemingway comes to the table as someone who didn't vote for Trump in 2016, couldn't bring himself to vote for him, never Trumper. But uh, the behavior of the left has forced him to reevaluate, as well as some of the decisions that Trump has made that are certainly consistent with conservative principles. Hemingway uh, writes, to summarize recent political history from the perspective of Trump supporters, for a long time, those on the right who ostensibly and conspicuously aligned themselves with public virtue tried to hold themselves to a higher standard in the belief they would be rewarded. The left and their enablers in the media countered by suggesting every example of someone on the right failing to be virtuous was discrediting. This was always an illogical argument. Insofar as being hypocritical doesn't mean you're wrong. Morally, it's better to profess the need for virtue than to fail to be virtuous and fail to be virtuous, I should say, than to reject the accountability that comes with the public embrace of virtue at all. Politically, however, public virtue is a tactical error if you're willing to exploit it. With Trump's election, there was a drastic and yes, according to Hemingway, problematic unburdening of this strategic disadvantage public virtue presented. It was the, the belief that uh, character is destiny and character matters in terms of a political leader. I believe that. But, uh, you know, there was an appetite for a street fighter because conservatives and the Republican Party hadn't seen one in a few generations, uh, not since the 80s. And so Hemingway argues we're at the point now where each side is exercising their own immoral rhetorical excesses while trying to hold the other side accountable. There's certainly a part of that. But to be fair, a part of that is the street fight when the press corps has said that the ends justify the means. And we will do whatever we can in furtherance of taking this guy out of office. Lie, cheat and steal. The rules are there are no rules. And how do you then play by rules other than, you know, sort of a, a personal coda of integrity that you uh, would uh, you know, otherwise try to uh, abide, but you know, take the shots where they need to be taken? Does, does that mean that we shouldn't be concerned when Trump says regulate or shut down private communication platforms? No, we should be concerned. We should be concerned. But it perhaps prompts a conversation about what that looks like, what that could look like. Uh, For example, should these private social media platforms and this is not I'm not advocating this position. I'm saying this is a conversation and it's not an illegitimate one. Should these private uh, communication platforms, Twitter, Facebook. And so forth. Be treated like public utilities. Like the radio airwaves where you have a regulatory agency in the case of radio, of course, the FCC. It hands out licenses and uh, oversees the operation of the operators. Has there uh, much of a, a case history with the FCC 
being hyper-political in the granting of licenses or the regulating of on-air content? I mean, there's some examples of that. Obviously, there's a Supreme Court case, case history on the, these topics. Um, but that's just in the context of a free expression and a free society. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know offhand, but nothing comes to me where the FCC is perceived as being you know, decidedly uh, one-sided in terms of granting licenses based on political disposition. You know, they have a finite number of licenses, the other uh, issues, like the, the barriers to entry in terms of cost and so forth. But, but um, they don't come in and, number one, regulate based on whether you're going to be a left-wing or right-wing radio station, a radio talk show format, if you will. Uh, and they're not in the business of um, of coming in and regulating content based on political position. Could you say the same about these private social media platforms? No. And then the argument is that, uh, well, that's why they're private. They can do what they want. This is the platform they've built. If conservatives or uh, right-leaning folks want something that isn't so overtly left-leaning and antagonistic towards cognitive dissonance, then they should build their own. And there's an argument uh, to be made there. There's an argument to be made there. Uh, But recall the research of Robert Epstein, which we've uh, highlighted on this show before, noted uh, psychiatrist, Harvard educated, whose uh, study of Google over six years, and he testified to this back last July when Dennis Prager was before Senate subcommittee on uh, censorship on YouTube, right? Talked about uh, Dr. Going back to Dr. Epstein, the ability of Google and the social media platforms, if they were to act in concert with one another to try to impact the 2020 election, can move millions and millions of votes, north of 10 million votes. Uh, he suggests that's what they did in 2016 for Hillary Clinton, and they could do twice that in 2020, and probably much more successfully. Trump's not going to sneak up on them. The, way that he did on so many in 2016. So, uh, you know, manipulation or interference in the election by uh, Russian actors or by big tech colluding with one political party. It's a complicated question. And uh, Trump is perhaps prompting a discussion in a bit of a ham-handed way, as sometimes is his way. But make no mistake, it is a discussion that's going to be had because there are some other Republicans who are now following suit in donning the garb of the street fighter rather than the cake eater in the era of Trump. We'll be right back. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show, and I'm sure you've seen it by now, but uh, two champagne socialists enter, uh, enter Central Park, and one of them leaves with his job. This is what happened when Amy Cooper ran into Christian Cooper, no relation, Cooper v. Cooper, 
in Central Park, uh, Christian Cooper, a bird watcher, Amy Cooper walking her dog off leash in violation of park rules, and uh, the confrontation occurred. Begging Twitter to, to delete your tweets. That's not it. Would you please stop? Sir, I'm asking you to stop. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording you. Please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm in the ramble and there is a man, African-American, he has a bicycle helmet. He is recording me and threatening me and my dog. There is an African-American man, I am in Central Park, he is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. And my While she's choking her dog. I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. I'm in Central Park in the ramble. I don't know. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, good grief. These two. One is Harvard educated. That would be Christian Cooper. The other, her MBA from University of Chicago, Booth School, is working at uh, a uh, uh, New York City financial services firm. Well, she was because after this went viral, she got ash canned and, uh, you know, crocodile tears on that score. Uh, Miss Amy Cooper publicly apologizing to everyone. I'm not a racist. I didn't mean to harm that man in any way. She also said she didn't mean to harm the African-American community. I'm sure the community will survive Amy Cooper. Uh, Christian Cooper saying, I videotaped it because I thought it was important to document things. Unfortunately, we live in an era with things like Ahmed Arbery, where black men are seen as targets. The woman thought she could exploit that to her advantage, and I wasn't having it. These two, really. Uh, first of all, the uh, Champagne Socialist uh, uh, Financial Services com person, Amy Cooper, the Obama donor, uh, getting her just desserts, couldn't care less. What a terrible person. What a waste of time to enlist the police to manufacture a threat that you are not under. He wasn't threatening your life. There is some back and forth between the two that's been reported prior to the uh, video that went viral that uh, where they got into the argument uh, initially over her not, I can't even believe I have to explain this where her, she's not uh, leashing her dog in an area that's required that requires your dog be leashed. And he's asking her to do so. And she's saying, I don't want to, he needs to run. And he says, well, you know, I've got some treats for your dog. If uh, can come here, boy, if uh, you know, you don't follow the rules implying he was going to do something dastardly to her dog or something. But, of course, nothing nothing transpired whatsoever. And then so she manufactures that she's under threat of her life. Obviously, it's absurd because she's an absurd, silly person. But he is also abs- uh, an absurd, silly person. We live in an era with things like Ahmed Arbery, where black men are seen as targets. This woman thought she could exploit that to her advantage, and I wasn't having it. How is he comparing himself to a guy that was gunned down in the in, in the street in Georgia? 
She's got her cocker spaniel off leash in the some some bird sanctuary in Central Park. I mean, these are such insufferable navel gazing twits. The two of them, they, they deserve each other. I almost wish they'd get together and become a couple just to take them sort of both out of, you know, uh, you know, everybody else's lives. Let them make each other miserable. Good grief. The the subtext of this, of course, which is not being reported because the press can only handle presenting this in a black white issue when there's a black man and a white woman or you know black and white just in general. The subtext is, as I said, these are both. Champagne socialists, Harvard and University of Chicago booth, one is a successful um, creative, he's a creative uh, guy of sorts. He's some sort of comms professional or, or editor. This is Christian Cooper. And then, you know, she, the Booth MBA and New York City. I mean, you, you could find both of these people at a P hat march wearing the P hats. And look, and I appreciate that uh, Christian Cooper's an avid bird watcher. And there's some 230 species of birds and he's on the Audubon Society board. And so that's a real thing. And uh, he and the other birders, as he calls them, as I, apparently they call themselves, you know, like that space for obvious reasons because of all the birds. And they can look at the ground fowl and all that stuff, but they can't if dogs are running around and attacking the birds. Uh, OK, I mean, are we 11, 11? Are we four? Are we five years old? The fact that those two Harvard-educated Booth MBA couldn't resolve the matter of a dog on a leash versus abiding versus uh, uh, allowing her you know, dog to exercise somewhere else in Central Park, which is not a particularly small park. They couldn't figure out how to resolve it without competing threats and a 911 call. Says everything you need to know about these over-educated, navel-gazing champagne socialists, doesn't it? I mean, I really, it's just, and that, and for this to be turned into some sort of, um, some sort of comment on race in America, these two are the same person. They're the same. Which uh, leads me to uh, the need for a mental health break. And um, one way to get a mental health break is to take advantage of the limited time discount of 25% off No Safe Spaces. You can live stream No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. The discount code SAFE25 for 25% off, which allows you to watch as many times as you want until the end of May, which is right around the corner, May 31st. No Safe Spaces, uh, again, at nosafespaces.com, the number one political documentary of 2019. Just talking about him, Dennis Prager and uh, Adam Carolla documenting the hostility that social media platforms, which we were just talking about, Hollywood, college campuses have towards free thought and free speech in a free America. Uh, It is uh, still timely uh, because of exactly what we were talking about with Trump, uh, with Twitter tagging Trump and Trump tagging Twitter right back. So uh, take this opportunity to check out No Safe Spaces. Again, the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off. And watch it as many times as you want at nosafespaces.com until months end.
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Peace in uh, RealClearPolitics.com. Yanan Weiss, a tech entrepreneur, military veteran, bioengineer by education. The virus is now known to have an infection fatality rate for most people under 65 that is no more dangerous than driving 13 to 101 miles per day. Even by conservative estimates, the odds of COVID-19 death are roughly in line with existing baseline odds of dying in any given year. And he actually charts it. It's useful. I'll tweet this out. The virus uh, uh, features a survival rate of 99.99% if you are a healthy individual under 50 years old. Even in New York City, which reached a 25% infection rate, had 99.98% of all people in the city under 45 survive, making it comparable to death rates by normal accidents. So, um, what, what, did, what did we do? What, what did we do? What did we do to ourselves? Uh, even at the peak in the epicenter of the outbreak in America, New York City still had around one in six hospital beds open and around one in 10 ICU beds open. Uh, Brendan O'Neill, our friend over at Spiked Online, he's talking about Britain, but see if uh, you substituted Chicago or America, generally speaking, with the exception of a handful of states, in for Britain, and it wouldn't ring true to you. The role of the citizen in the COVID dystopia is to applaud the state, not question it. Every Thursday night on your doorsteps or your balconies, you must clap for the benevolent state and its gracious health service. Big Brother loves you and you must love it back. Vast propaganda billboards remind us of this duty from Wembley Stadium to motorway hoardings to the front windows of the most respectable citizens' houses. The same three words loom like an omnipresent reminder to the masses of the only opinion you're allowed to hold in COVID Britain. Thank you, NHS. So in here, it's, you know, stay safe or stay inside, save lives or some other Twitter hashtag. But but is it's directionally the same here as Brendan O'Neill describes in Britain, I would argue. James Bovard uh, argues that um, the political class should be held liable for the decisions they've made. James Bovard, author of 10 books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, a frequent contributor to the Hill dot com and a contributing editor for American conservative joins us now. James, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. So will the political has, uh, class be held liable for what they've done? What, what do you have in mind? Uh, as soon as hell freezes over, they'll be held liable. Um, it's a basic problem with this, uh, with the entire response to the pandemic, is that the, the politicians acted like they had a right to inflict unlimited economic damage uh, based on the uh, you know data often secret data that showed rising death rates, which didn't happen in most places, but there was still vast destruction. I mean, uh, 30, 40 million jobs lost. That's going to be a vast, you know, there's an increase in suicide rates. There's all kinds, you know, there are dominoes falling from that, which we've only begun to see the damage. Uh, But it was, it's most unfortunate how easy it was for the politicians to unleash themselves and claim in many places unlimited power. Well, and they, they run on talking about how it's not over, that the virus is still with us. That's not over. Well, that's true. Also, what they're doing, the damage they're doing, you're describing is not over either. 
Uh, Brian Westbury writing at uh, realclearpolitics.com as well. Below 25 years old, the fatality rate of COVID-19 is 0.00008, or roughly 1 in 1.25 million. And yet we've shut down all schools and daycare centers, some never to open again, which, of course, makes it very difficult for moms and dads to remain employed with child care issues. And so right now, against the backdrop of that data, we're arguing about whether schools should open. Many of the same politicians you're talking about saying they shouldn't. Well, and it's, you know, uh, there's a bias here because the politicians like power and most of the media is applauding them when they push the panic buttons and say we've got to keep everything shut down and basically have people uh, cower in their basements in perpetuity until there's a vaccine or or until there's zero fatalities or whatever. Uh, it's amazing how the politicians have gotten away with changing the baseline so many times on this pandemic. And uh, it's like a, it's like they can always pull another rabbit out of the hat to justify their arbitrary power. When we come back with author James Bovard, I want to get to uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's mea culpa of sorts. More with James Bovard when we return. Author James Bovard talking lockdowns and their bases. Uh, I just want you to react to uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo since he became America's governor during this pandemic, despite the fact that he perhaps made the most egregious and colossally bad decision of any governor, although it's been mimicked by other governors, including Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and I think maybe by Governor Pritzker. We can't quite get a clear answer on it, which is to send infected people back to the nursing homes in which they were infected. Um, but Andrew Cuomo, uh, uh, over the Memorial Day weekend, uh, admitting uh, some uh, some some things that turned out not to be true that they thought would be. We all failed at that business, right? All the early national experts, uh, here's my projection model, here's my projection model. They were all wrong. They were all wrong. Uh, I, I love the innocent bystander routine. They were all wrong, but the decisions I made predicated on that, uh, he has no comment. Right. And uh, this is the governor who justified shutting down the entire state of New York if he could save one life. And so you have almost 20 million people put under house arrest to save one life. That was his standard. But throughout this pandemic response, politicians have simply ignored the collateral damage they have done to people's lives, to the economy, to jobs, to businesses, to learning, and the simple joy of life. It's like so many politicians have acted like they're, you know, that they're entitled to be dictators. And you got the Governor Cuomo there saying, well, everybody was wrong. Yeah, maybe everybody was wrong, but you were the dictator. The politicians like to say, we're basing our decisions on, 
on data and science. Well, show us the data and the science. Nope, it's secret. You know, there's so many different levels of BS here. Well, here's something, too, where there's a certain amount of BS that uh, you can't totally blame on the politicians. This is BS that we're feeding ourselves. One of the things I find is, look, any loss of life is tragic. I, why we need to restate this. Nobody is in, nobody's promoting the loss of life. But the idea that we normally view the death of an 85-year-old uh, the same way we view the death of a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old is wrong. We, we never view it that way. We recognize the promise that when unfulfilled, when a young person dies in an uh, you know, un, untimely death, we look at an 85-year-old who passes away and say, lived a good life. Uh, it's just a different calculus that we make with the understanding of our mortality, and that seems to have been suspended as well during this. Right, and you know, it's and, and there's there's a um, there's a prism the media is using. Uh, there's probably been a sharp increase in suicides among young young Americans. I mean, teenagers and others. Uh, certainly, there's been a huge in, in, uh, increase in the percentage of people reporting depression or anxiety, which is often precursors to attempted suicide. Uh, so, but this doesn't count as long as the politics. You know. It's like the politicians have the right to point at the only numbers that matter and everything else we're supposed to ignore. But there is so much damage that has been done. And yet with the yet with the way that the, the courts and the laws work in America, thanks to sovereign immunity, it will be impossible to hold politicians liable, even for cases like Governor Cuomo in the nursing homes where his policy is sending COVID patients that are killed thousands of people probably, or even even more bizarre in uh, Pennsylvania where, where you had the health czar follow a similar policy and then pull her own 95-year-old mother out of a nursing home right. to keep her safe. So are, are you surprised where we are today, where we've become a better safe than sorry, uh, out of an abundance of caution nation, uh, with so many of us, such a large percentage of Americans infantilized by their government? Uh, that's a that's a great question. Oh, that's a hard one. No, I, I mean this this is sort of like an echo of the the weeks and months after nine eleven, when so many people were so frightened and they were so desperate for you know to have a great leader who promised to keep them safe, no matter how many foreign nations we had to invade or bomb. Um, and you know it was it was sort of like uh, back then. There was a constant refrain, we have to, you know, the government has to do this or else the terrorists will win. People have to stay and, you know, uh, keep quiet and not complain or else the terrorists will win. Well, it's the same kind of nonsense now or else the pandemic will win or else COVID will come back. And it's like, you know, life has risks. Uh, but if you go and destroy freedom based on a group of people who have no accountability, then that's that's a hell of a risk that you're ignoring. You know, it's funny about that uh, referencing 9-11. And, you know, if you uh, if you don't do this, the, the terrorists will win. You know, I recall it was if we change the way we live, the terrorists will win. Well, that's exactly what we did with the expansion of the surveillance state, the growth of the FBI's footprint, uh, all this political correctness with respect to Islamist terrorism and the news speak that uh, emanated from during the post 9-11 era, particularly during Obama's presidency, we did change the way we live. So I guess the terrorists won. Well, yeah, I mean, there, uh, you know, um, something that George Bush was saying that the terrorists hated us for our freedom. So we got rid of our freedom. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. We didn't I mean, get rid of all of it, but we no. put a hell of a dent in it. We got rid of a lot of it. So. Well, and that's the same thing here. So, you know, we, we have to d- defeat this virus so we can go back to the way we live. But the problem is we're not going back to the way we live because of the decisions we've made and essentially the uh, the concessions that we have given to a political class that will take and hold on to those concessions. Uh, it was not a concession on my part. I mean, it oh. wasn't voluntary on my part. It was like, okay, you know, do I want to get arrested? I don't think so. Not today. Um, but no, they just seize power and false pretenses. But this is what politicians have done for thousands of years. And so, you know, this is just one more pretext for them to grab power and to lie to people. Um, there are risks and, um, you know, um, it, you know, it, it certainly makes sense to do some things. I was in favor of social distancing early on, uh, even even prior to the governor's shelter-in-place order in this state. Uh, there were, but a lot of Maryland's were already, you know, doing that prior to the government uh, dictating it. People were taking precautions for their own health. I mean, government assumes that everybody's an idiot who's going to go out and hug everybody they see. Uh, but you know, people aren't that stupid, except for some of the politicians. What did uh, you know, what did what did Ambrose Bierce say about uh, uh, politicians? The where uh, public vice become or private vice becomes public virtue. That's what we have, right? You know, they yeah, beca- well, they, they magically Bierce become our wonderful. Vendors. Yes. Yep. Yep. He was one of my favorite writers. He is James Bovard, author of ten books, member of the USA Today board of contributors, frequent contributor to thehill.com, and a contributing editor for American Conservative. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot. It was fun. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'd be remiss if I didn't comment on this uh, very disturbing incident, the death, arguably murder, of a Minnesota man named George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers on Monday, a bystander capturing 10 minutes of video. George Floyd, confronted by the Minneapolis Police Department, several officers responding to a report of a forgery, fake $20 bill. He was sitting in his car when officers arrived at the scene, according to the police report, commanded to exit his vehicle. They say that Floyd got out of his car, physically resisted the officers, and was handcuffed. Important. It was then that officers noticed that Floyd appeared to be suffering medical distress. That's not quite what the video shows. Uh, He's down on the ground. Uh, He's subdued. He's effectively in custody. And one of the officers in question has his knee on the back of his neck and keeps it there uh, well after Mr. Floyd was clearly unconscious. And you have another officer that uh, steps in between those who are heckling the officer with his knee on Floyd's neck while he's unconscious after pleading that he couldn't breathe and please release the knee. And uh, the officer didn't do it. I cannot breathe. You're just a grown guy. You're a tough guy. You're a tough guy, huh? I think you're a tough guy. You're not even resisting the rest, bro. His whole nose is on. You fought with him? Bro, why you just sitting there? He ain't doing nothing. You're putting him in the car. It'll kill me. How long I got to hold him down? Why are you doing drugs, kids? It ain't about drugs, bro. Y'all understand that. Nah, y'all don't got to put on. Right. He is human, bro. His nose is complete. You can put him in the car. That's a bull. 
10 minutes. That's a bum ass shit, bro. That's a bum ass shit, bro. Y'all know that. You don't gotta sit there with your knee on his neck, bro. Bro, he ain't crying, bro. They bro, what is you, 1087, bro? You're a oh bum, bro. God, or 987, bro? You're a bum. First thing you want to grab is your mace because you scared, bro. Scared of minorities, you fucking bum, bro. Like, yeah, and of course, uh, he died. Um, the, the officer didn't release his knee from Mr. Floyd's neck until the emergency services arrived. All four officers involved in the stop are now former Minneapolis police officers. Uh, I spoke with a Chicago police officer friend of mine. She said, yeah, basically that looks like straight up murder to me. She said, we're trained that when you have somebody cuffed and in custody, if you have them on the ground, you turn them on their side for the express purpose of preventing them from asphyxiation, which is the opposite of what that Minneapolis police officer did. So again, I know this is a spawned, protests in Minneapolis and this is going to be completely bastardized by the press corps with respect to police and black Americans in America but you got to call strikes and balls here and uh, those Minneapolis police officers appear to be clearly in the wrong and I suspect you're going to have murder charges filed against one or more of them in addition to a wrongful death suit again based on what we know in terms of evidence that's been presented or even rumored, uh, there is uh, a legitimate basis for both. This is Dan Proust. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Fascinating uh, piece in Politico. The general election scenario Democrats are dreading. In early April, Jason Furman, a top economist in the Obama administration, now a professor at Harvard, speaking via Zoom to a large bipartisan group of top officials from both parties. The economy had just been shut down. Unemployment was spiking. Some policymakers were predicting an era worse than the Depression, dooming President Trump's reelection chances, many thought. And Jason Furman opened up his presentation saying, we're about to see the best economic data we've seen in the history of the country. They were jarred, a summer upset who want the economy to struggle because they'll do anything and suffer any carnage in order to get Trump from office. That's the opinion of some. Furman saying in an interview, everyone looked puzzled and thought I had misspoken, but he hadn't. He believes that the pandemic and the shutdown is different than the Great Depression or the Great Recession. He believes, essentially, you're going to see a V-shaped recovery because it's uh, what you see after a natural disaster, this one just being different in the sense that it was self-imposed. Does one Stephen Moore agree for more on this? Stephen Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics, and featured speaker at the recent uh, reopen rally over by Buckingham Fountain while he was in town. Steve, thanks for being with us. Look, it, it was so sad, I have to say, I haven't been back to Chicago for four or five months, 
And I walked down the middle of uh, State Street and, and even Michigan Avenue. It was like a ghost town. I mean, what your politicians, what Pritzker is doing to the state of Illinois by impoverishing his own people and by bankrupting these businesses so unnecessarily, is so despicable. It seemed like every ever billboard was propaganda from the state of Illinois or the city about, oh, follow the science. The experts are telling us this or that. And folks, the science has been, even Cuomo is admitting that science has been all wrong from the very start about COVID. Every prediction that was made, especially all the apocalyptic predictions, have been wrong by not 20, 30, 40, 50, but 70, 80, 90 percent. I mean, this is the same science, of course, that they say that, you know, we can't use fossil fuels or else we're going to blow up the planet. But it's, it was sad to see, but I love to see, I think there were a couple thousand great patriots out there on Monday, and, and it was great to see so many people standing up for their freedoms and liberties. And, and now, on that study that you just mentioned, I mean, on the economic prediction, I'm not quite there with Jason Furman. Look, it's a little misleading what they were saying, because they're saying, oh, you know, come the third quarter, we're going to have the best economic data ever. Well, that's true, except that, you know, we're going to see the worst economic data by far in the history of the country for the second quarter. And we're going to see 30 to 35, maybe 38 percent reductions in our economy. We've never, ever seen anything like that before, even in the Great Depression. And so obviously, you know, you're going to see a good number for the third quarter, but we're still going to be way, way below where we were. Now, where I think Trump has the upper hand is if you just ask people, uh, you know, obviously I'm a Republican, so I'm a Trumper, but people who are not necessarily ideological, and you just say, who, you know, who do you think is going to help get the economy back on its feet, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? I mean, that's, that's not a hard question to answer. And the polls are showing it's the one issue that Trump has a big lead on uh, Biden is that, you know, Biden is, is just not capable of getting the economy up and running. And Trump has proven he can do it because he did it once before. I don't, predict the v-shaped recovery i hate to tell you this i'm predicting a u-shaped recovery i think the summer is going to be really brutal especially for cities like chicago if the governor ever allows the city to reopen but it's going to be a long long recovery you've done a lot of damage governor pittsburgh to the economic infrastructure and the business conditions of your state and don't forget mayor Lori lightfoot because she's even more draconian than he is but i wanted to uh, to pick up on something your friend larry kudlow said yesterday FTI consulting survey this week showing 78% of Americans say they're willing to pay more for products if a company moved out of China. Larry Kudlow said that the administration is looking at doing just that, paying companies to move their supply webs out of China and onshore them. Good idea. First of all, what people say they're willing to do and what they do is very, very different. I understand. And so you ask people, are you willing to pay more? And they say, oh, of course. But then when they go to the store, they tend to buy the cheapest product. But look, I, I am not for higher tariffs. You know me, Dan. I'm a, I'm a free trade guy. But I am in favor of incentivizing our businesses to bring money back to the United States. So why not just let them bring back any money in China, uh, bring it back for free? Any money you want to bring back, because right now you have to pay sometimes a 10, 15, 20, 25 percent tax on that. Well, let's incentivize that money coming back from China by charging American companies zero to bring it back and invest it here and bring those supply chains here. I think China is the big, big loser here. I'm a real hawk when it comes to China right now. I think they owe us reparations. I don't know what that number should be, but it should be in the hundreds of billions. I'm even so hardcore, I believe they don't want to pay it back. We'll just say, okay, you know what? Here's $500 billion in bonds we owe you, but you owe us money, so we'll just call it even. We're not going to pay you back that money. Now, I know Larry Kudlow is not in favor of that. Well, well, just on what Kudlow said, too, because I want to comment specifically on it. 
uh, he said full expensing, okay, and pay yep. and yep. pay the cost of moving if they return supply chains and the production to the United States. You're saying something a little bit different. I sort of like what you're saying better, actually. But is there some reconciliation between your view and Kudlow's view and who, whose view is most uh, popular yeah, among sure. the president? I am. I mean, by the way, the polls are showing there's only one thing in all of American politics today, almost only one thing that I can find that almost all Americans agree on. You know what that is? China. <laughs> I mean, everybody is hopping mad at China, and they should be. They have acted incredibly deviously, and they should pay us for the damage they've done to our economy. And they spread this germ warfare. I don't know if they did it intentionally or just incompetence, maybe a little bit of both. But the fact is, China does owe us. We are, look, we're in a new Cold War with China, and I am in favor of bringing some of those jobs back. But they don't have to necessarily come back to the United States. Why not get China out of the supply chain and move it to Vietnam or move it to India or move it to Taiwan or other places? Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to a surprising number uh, that posted yesterday, and that was sales of newly built homes rose 1% in April. That doesn't sound like a big number, but when uh, it was expected to drop by 22%, it turns out to be a a big number and perhaps uh, some of the reason the market rallied again yesterday. And uh, if whether or not we should read too much into that in terms of maybe the second quarter not being as devastating as some are predicting. Well, look, the housing market actually has held up surprisingly well. So that is a good sign. And those numbers you just cited are confirming that. You know what's getting crushed on real estate is the commercial real yeah, estate well, market. Yeah. It's getting demolished. And so, uh, by the way, we just bought a new house. We got a pretty good price for our new home. And, and uh, so real estate is moving. The problem is, folks, and I want to share with this, we are seeing a war between the blue states and the red states right now. And every day that your governor and your mayor keep your great city of Chicago and the great state of Illinois shut down. You're falling further, further behind. And we're going to see a very bifurcated recovery. Illinois, New York, New Jersey, California, Michigan are going to have brutally bad recoveries. And Tennessee and Texas and Georgia and Iowa. When I was there, you know, in Chicago, everybody's saying, why are we shut down? Iowa's open. Indiana's open. Nebraska's open. Why not Illinois? And there's no good answer to that. The liberals say, oh, well, you know, you're opening up too soon. No. Georgia and Florida and Texas and Tennessee have seen the most rapid decline in deaths and hospitalization. Their rates of hospitalizations are falling faster than the rate in Illinois, which is shut down. Please explain that one to me. Where is the center of gravity on the issue of state and local bailouts? Because I know oh. I know Kevin Hass over the weekend said that the states are making and localities are making some absurd requests, but he also indicated a sort of openness to have discussions about about uh, reimbursing for covid related expenses however defined uh i as you know i am i'm running a big coalition called save our country uh and uh, people if they want to find out more about it go to our you know website at uh, committees on leash prosperity but the number one priority right now is to and we have a hundred of the major conservative voices in america that is basically saying not a dime more spending we have already spent three trillion dollars. Oh, and by the way, a lot of that money has gone directly to the states already. Not a dime more. Every penny that we continue to spend in Washington is weakening the economy. It is, Dan, I know you know this, government spending is not a stimulus. We have to say that a thousand times before people, it, it, I mean, didn't we learn that in the Obama era when, remember, Obama spent a trillion dollars and we had the weakest recovery ever? Stop spending money. If we want to help the states, repeal the payroll tax for the rest of the year, give the money directly to the people and the businesses so they can open up. And by the way, that's a 65-20 issue in our favor. So, uh, and, and the other thing is, 
the reason I'm so adamantly opposed to any bailout of these states is what we are doing is in Washington is enabling. We are enabling Pittsburgh. We're enabling Cuomo. We're enabling uh, Gavin Newsom in California. They believe they can just keep their economy shut down month after month after month, and that the government, the Washington is going to come with a big you know, pot of gold and lay it down there, and then we're going to reimburse you for all these costs. And I'm here to tell you, no, we're going to throw our body in front of that train. We are not going – Illinois, you have every right to elect Pritzker as, as governor. I think he's one of the worst governors in America. Illinois has every right to do whatever it wants to. In my opinion, I'm a states' rights guy. But don't come to Washington and expect us to bail out for your bad decisions in Illinois. Steve, do you think I feel strongly about this? Very good. Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Have a great week. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show uh you referenced this op-ed in the wall street journal over the weekend yesterday but bears uh, a bit of revisiting this from Van Gordon Sauter, who is the former president of CBS News in the 80s for a couple of stints. He uh, writes of journalism today inside the Beltway. To many journalists, objectivity, balance, fairness. Once the gold standard of reporting are not mandatory in a divided political era and in a country they believe to be severely flawed. That assumption folds neatly into their assessment of the president. There's probably no way to seal the gap between the media and a large segment of the public. The media likes what it's doing, admires it, celebrates it. They like they like them. Yeah, that's what he's saying. There is no personal, professional or financial reason to change. If anything, the gap will expand. Ultimately, the media finds the deplorables deplorable. Van Gordon Sutter can only offer the hope that the media will just be transparent about who they are. Well, they sort of have been, although they continue sometimes to cloak themselves in the moniker of journalism when perhaps it is no longer appropriate. Uh, for more on the topic, uh, going back into the um, 70s and uh, in the context of thinking about our national security state, which uh, the uh, left-wing journalists used to be somewhat skeptical of and now they fully embraced, we're pleased to be joined by Robert Mary, longtime Washington, D.C. journalist and publishing executive and author most recently of President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. Robert Mary, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. What did you uh, make of uh, Van Gordon Sauter's uh, remarks about the state of journalism with a little bit of historical perspective like you have? Well, I found it quite remarkable and yet probably not surprising because journalism has been going in the direction that he now applauds for quite some time. Certainly the mainstream media, the, uh, the prestige media have been moving in that direction so I think it was only a matter of time when someone said, well, yeah, that's what we're doing, and um, let's defend it. Whereas uh, previously, most of these people from the mainstream media, the prestige journalism entities, were insisting that they maintain the old standards and values when, in fact, they didn't. In your piece, uh, Remember When Liberals Despise the National Security State, I, I like what you've done because I'm a bit of a cinephile myself, and, and that is to go through the movies of the last 30 years, which cast these uh, 
deep state agencies in, um, you know, often a negative light. There was corruption within these agencies. And what was going on within these agencies was actually the threat to national security. The only one I I think you left out, if I'm recalling correctly, I think I made a note. It was no way out with uh, Kevin Costner. That that should have been included. But but uh, but you go over three days of the Condor and FX and Pelican Brief and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think it's a nice angle in because what you see reflected in the culture and the cultural offerings like from Hollywood is reflective of sort of where leftist intelligentsia is in a particular topic or topic area. And that seems to have changed radically in the last couple of years. Well, it certainly has in terms of journalism, but I use the uh, the popular culture as a kind of a, a barometer in terms of what the liberal sensibility was regarding these abuses. And we had three investigations back in the mid-70s in the wake of Watergate regarding abuses on the part of the top officials of CIA and FBI. And among the people who were most ardent in going after those abuses and the people who perpetrated them were liberals. I I mentioned Daniel Shore of CBS, who was, um, no one could question his liberal credentials. And he was as aggressive as any in terms of revealing uh, these abuses. And and I said, well, the popular culture was certainly moving in the same direction. And that was all perpetrated and given to us from uh, the liberal movie makers of Hollywood. And there seemed to be a widespread feeling that power corrupts and we have to hold account to these people at the top levels of these secret agencies who have so much power over us. And that's all gone now. I mean, you can't get to New York Times to even give a kind of a nod or a tip of the hat to anybody who suggests that there was some serious abuse with regarding the beginning of the so-called Russia collusion probe. Yeah. What would uh, Daniel Shore have said about uh, a outgoing presidential administration surveilling the incoming presidential administration? Well, don't you think, I mean, from just just to say that in itself, it leads to the next point, which is there's got to be a story there. And <laughs> right. yet you can't get the New York Times to really think there's a story there. The only story they saw was the Russian collusion story, which uh, imploded into nothingness as the investigation continued. Well, and the other thing, too, is just thinking about uh, present day and the pandemic that we're still in the midst of dealing with. Again, these 9-11 comparisons coming out of 9-11, what happened? The big state expanded, big government expanded, including intelligence agencies, national security agencies. And what we see right now uh, is, again, big government expanding. And this time in conjunction with big tech in a way that we didn't have, not to this extent, back after 9-11, when you talk about, for example, Apple and Google coming up with a contact tracing program. And for a press that was at one time concerned about uh, metadata collection, sympathetic to Edward Snowden, upset with Jim Clapper for lying to Congress, uh, all that's gone, too. And uh, as are any concerns prospectively about uh, the, the, the power of the state in coordination, to some extent, with big tech. Well, you're really right on this. There's been a tremendous transformation, and it doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. Because where are the people now who are suggesting, even just go back to the George W. Bush administration and the metadata controversies that exploded there, the major liberal news organizations and the liberal establishment certainly raised questions about that and made it difficult for Bush and his people. Um, But I don't see that now except insofar as you know that they're going to go after 
Trump on anything that Trump does. So it's all political and it's all focused on, on Trump, pro and con. Does this um, mean that we just uh, have to content ourselves with hoping we get personnel in offices, like I would argue, a bar at the attorney general's office who are not going to play the tit for tat, which he said explicitly, and allow things to be more politicized than they are, weaponized more than they are. We're going to remember why we're here, which is to do the, the bidding of our constituents and adherence to the Constitution. We need that at CIA. We need that at the FISA court level. We need that uh, at FBI. Uh, or do we have to radically restructure if we want the preservation of our freedoms? Well, that's an excellent question. I have to say that you have to be concerned about where all this is going, because when power accumulates, it tends to be grabbed by people who want power. And that can that can cut across partisan lines. And we've seen that. I mean, certainly Republicans have um, have um, moved in that direction, uh, maybe in different ways, but certainly to the same extent as Democrats have. Uh, in many many instances, so it's uh, it's a problem. I don't know the, I don't know what the answer is, but what I was concerned about in that piece was the question of uh, who's out there, you know, beating the drums, saying, "Hey, power corrupts. We have to be careful about this. We have to we have to monitor um, the uses and abuses of power at the upper echelons of our government, particularly those elements of our government that are operating on secrecy." Um, and, and it used to be there, and now it's not there to a very significant extent, except insofar as people want to move along partisan lines one way or the other, for or against Trump, for example, or right. for or against the Democrats or Republicans. He is Robert Mary, a longtime Washington, D.C. journalist, publishing executive, and author most recently of President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. Robert Mary, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. There's no time there for you. No time there for you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Last time we spoke to our next guest, we were discussing his belief that the CIA needed to be abolished. Uh, now we turn to another institution that he is arguing needs to be abolished. Uh, that is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act courts that were created in the late 70s. And he knows uh, something about it because he helped author the uh, animating legislation. He is Angelo Cotavia. He's a senior fellow for the Claremont Institute and Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University. Professor, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You're most welcome. It's a fascinating story that you uh, outline in your piece at uh, uh, Daily Caller, I think is where I read it, actually. Uh, but yes. uh, you, um, you uh, talk about yourself as perhaps the last surviving member of the Senate Intelligence Committee staff that wrote FISA. And you give an account of how it came about and why it needs to go away. Why don't we start with the how it came about? Well, it came about because uh, back in the early 70s, a whole bunch of American leftists uh, were collaborating with um, the North Vietnamese and and, uh, Soviet Union uh, against uh, the U.S. and Vietnam. And the FBI 
was uh, wiretapping them. Uh, these people didn't like it. Uh, they ended up suing the, the, the agent, the actual agents who did the surveillance. These people uh, didn't like that either. And uh, so essentially they, they went to the Justice Department and went to Congress and said, look, uh, you know, we, we, we're not going to do any more of that stuff, uh, any more forward surveillance, any more surveillance of even uh, the Soviet embassy, the, you know, the uh, UN, et cetera, uh, which would catch Americans talking to these foreigners unless you uh, provide legislation that uh, authorizes us uh, specifically uh, in each and every case to do that. Uh, just like you authorize us uh, to do criminal um, wiretaps or criminal uh, um, prosecutions. And the uh, Justice Department uh, um, said, okay, they, uh, together, together with the American Civil Liberties Union, they put together a, uh, a proposal uh, which they worked out with the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, strongly supported by the, the, um, the intelligence agencies, uh, for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which provides for for a essentially a pro forma, this is a very important point, a pro forma uh, authorization uh, for um, uh, electronic surveillance of uh, foreign entities, and and here is the here is the kicker, um, with provisions for minimizing the exposure of the the uh, Americans who are involved. Right. In but before, these, uh, before we get to the minimizing uh, cap- incidental uh, communications that involve Americans, um, I, I want to em- go go back to what you emphasized, that FISA was intended to be pro forma. And you make the oh, po- absolutely. And you make the point that the, the stats bared out in the 40 years uh, uh, from 79 to 2019, 33, almost 34,000 warrants granted while denying only 12 requests. So that certainly, <laughs> that certainly says that's the definition of pro forma. But, pro forma. But so this was just this was just to to essentially indemnify the intelligence agency, saying we were operating under sanction of a court of law. Yeah, yeah. And indemnify perhaps is the wrong word. Pre-authorize, uh, uh, pre-clear. Um, uh, the, the the key concept here is a priori. Right. Yes. Um, the court literally doesn't know nothing about these things. Uh, they, it's a mechanical process, uh, which essentially lets the agencies do what they want. Well, uh, but the really important point, the really key point, is that uh, it prevents ex post facto real scrutiny of what they have done. Actually, let's, uh, Professor, let's hold it right there. And when we come back, I want to get uh, your explanation of what you mean by preventing ex post facto review of what the agencies have done. And also, again, uh, pick up the conversation about the incidental collection of Americans, since that's germane, obviously, to all things related to General Flynn and the Russian collusion investigation. More with Professor Angelo Cotavia, Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute and Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University, right after. It's a shame the way you mess around with your man. It's a shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame the way you mess around with your man. I tried to speak with you, show you how. 
the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Angela Cotavia, Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute and Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University. He was detailing his involvement in drafting the uh, FISA legislation that created the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Courts. And uh, before the break, we were talking about how FISA would be, was intended to be a pro forma rubber stamp for the agencies that wanted to do the spying um, and also it uh, insulated them from any ex post facto review of said spying. Explain that last piece. All right. Look, if a court rules what you're doing is proper, according to the law, then um, on what grounds are you going to challenge that? When the uh, uh, American leftists who collaborated with the North Vietnamese, et cetera, um, uh, felt themselves aggrieved, they they sued, and their suits were heard, uh, could be heard fully, because after all, um, uh, there was nothing that uh, that said that the the decisions to wiretap them or whatever was done with the information uh, was was proper. Uh, you know, was the the propriety of what was being done was disputable. Well, once FISA was passed, the propriety of what was being done was no longer disputable. Uh, not only that, but the information was all classified. <laughs> and as you see, uh, because of, of what has happened in recent months, or what, what has come to light in, in recent months, uh, it is extremely difficult uh, to say that anything that the, the folks who, who spied on the Trump campaign did anything wrong when it is alleged that they did something wrong. What they say is we followed the law. Right. Well, it, the law didn't say the law didn't say you could wiretap the Trump campaign. The law said you had to you had to uh, uh, jump through certain hoops. And so the debate in court, the, the, the debate in, in, in court, and uh, in the court of public opinion, well, gets restricted to or did they go through the right hoops? Well, but that's irrelevant. The well, fact is that they did they did wrong. Well, and also, right, well, right, and all, but but also uh, with respect to Comey in particular, there's the issue of whether he made material misrepresentations to the FISA court. Obviously, as you say, they they don't know anything about the case, so they don't know. But who cares? I mean, well, that, well that's a that, that that's a procedural. If he made misrepresentations to the FISA court, that is a uh, that is something. That's straightforward contempt of court in any court in the land. Right. At least in any court in uh, in, uh, in the English-speaking world. Uh, but uh, but of course the court hasn't hasn't called them on it because the court is in on it. Uh, go go go. You, you see you see the problem that Pfizer has caused. Uh, it, it has turned questions of substance into questions of procedure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, this is, and by the way, I, I, you say that I was involved in the drafting, which is true, uh, entirely true. But but I was involved in the drafting in a in a negative manner. 
Right. You know, no, I, I know. Oppo- I opposed it all the way. Right. And you also argued for uh, severe punishments uh, for people who acted right. in bad, bad faith, like arguably Jim Comey, using that as exactly. a real world example. Exactly. So there were some t- actual teeth to the law. There were repercussions for yeah, yeah, the, the abuse. Law yes. Right. Um, so, so so let me ask you this, then, if if um, what you argued would have been adopted, that there were that the law had some teeth, um I know you still have the issue with the ex parte preclearance of surveillance by an ignorant judiciary. But what if the law had teeth, plus if you had some sort of um, uh, third party representative, so it was an adversarial process? Uh, if you had a third party representative, uh, well, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> like a guardian ad litem, but to represent the people rather than yeah. uh, a child. Uh, what, would those remedy the problems with FISA? Those two, uh, those two reforms uh, would have helped a little bit. Uh, but you know, it, it, whenever you're in a closed loop, I mean, you know perfectly well that, that uh, uh, closed containers breed mold. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. uh-uh. <laughs> nothing. There ain't nothing like sunshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is where a, a, a free press should, uh, you know, uh, should be the great um, sanitizer. Well, what's the what's but, the argument for the FISA, the, the the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court? Then why why can't all of this be done? And I, I suppose this is your argument. Why can't this all be done in a in a regular Article Three court? Oh well, the fundamental argument is constitutional. Uh, that um, then, of course, there's, there's a reason for it. But the actual constitutional argument is, is obvious because the decision to, to do surveillance here and there for national security reasons is a purely executive um, uh, function. Now, you, you, you mix the two and, you know, you are, again, you're stepping outside the Constitution. But why is the Constitution set up this way? The Constitution is set up this way because of, of the of the universal need for checks and balances. Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, who guards the guardians? Somebody has to have a, an adversary interest. You see, the, and, the the judiciary has to have an independent adversary interest. But is is somebody, but is there a way? And in, this, and in this case, it no longer does. Well, right. But is, if if the FISA courts don't work, and we had the the issue of. Uh, you know, Nixonian uh, 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 abrogations of, of executive power with respect to uh, foreign involvements, then, then what, would, what could be the check here, uh, knowing that we, you know, surveillance is, a, right. is a, an important right. look, tool? Well, well, look, the check is what existed before, namely ex post facto challenges. I mean, after all, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the fact that the... Uh, Agencies were uh, were able to um, uh, that, 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 sorry that the leftists were able to um, vindicate well not exactly not, not substantively but you know they, they were able to get at their enemies um, proves that in fact they could they did right enough so uh, that they and, and here we are at the back of the beginning enough so that they moved to create these FISA courts yeah it, it was it was a lot easier let me put it starkly it was a lot easier for them to achieve some kind of vindication in their own, uh, as far as they were concerned, than it is for the president of the United States today to achieve some kind of vindication. This tells you how, how much that law has benefited 
the, the intelligence bureaucracy. That is a salient point. He is Angelo Cotavia, Senior Fellow of the Claremont Institute, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University. Professor Cotavia, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and there's nothing more entertaining than watching the fungible champagne socialist D-bag MSNBC reporter get pantsed while doing his hit uh, back to the desk with Katie Tour. That's what happened to Cal Perry, who uh, visited uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, to uh, observe and report back on how cheeseheads and uh, Chicagoans venturing north of the Cheddar Curtain were enjoying Memorial Day weekend and whether they were doing all the things that uh, they're supposed to do to be good Americans with respect to mask wearing in particular. Here's uh, how that went. Cal Perry uh, hoist by uh, his own mask, as it were, by a uh, gentleman in a Packers jersey. Wait for it. So are the people there just not worried about it, Cal? Are they not worried about their own personal safety? I haven't met anybody who is. I met some folks actually from Lake Geneva who lived in the area. They were staying a few miles outside of town where I were. And they said they're worried about it. They're worried about that second spike. They're worried about folks coming in from Chicago. But they'll quickly add at the same time, this is a place that relies on that business. I think people here want a little bit more funding when it comes to these programs so that they could stay closed. But again, I think people felt like the Supreme Court made the decision here in Wisconsin that it was time to open up. But you can see here, just around. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's. Uh, the there you go, including the cameraman. Yeah. Katie? Exactly. <laughs> he points to this guy in a package jersey. Uh, look, right here, not wearing them. And the rejoinder, uh, yeah, like your cameraman's not wearing one. Like half your crew's not wearing one. Yep, that's right. Uh, you got me. Uh, back to you, Katie. Uh, reporting from Lake Geneva, Cal Perry. Uh, by the way, the uh, gentleman who gave him a smackdown that Clay Matthews would have been proud of has been identified uh, through the morning show that I do in Chicago as Andy Olson from suburban uh, Bolingbrook, which is about uh, 50 miles west of the city. So good for him, even though he's a Packers fan. Good stuff, Andy Olson. Uh, all right, folks, uh, like you or some of you in states that uh, are resisting the temptation to reopen. I'm confined to home, spending time with family. One thing to enjoy while you've got some time on your hands uh, and uh, limited entertainment options is uh, to watch something edifying that's consistent with your faith and uh, uh, advances your knowledge of said faith. Well, Uh, That leads me to Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. The work of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories, like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental. Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, at home, along with other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. And uh, that also includes a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson, 
and featuring our very own Dennis Prager, our very own Eric Metaxas, and Ann Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. Lessons learned from uh, 2016 by uh, anyone other than President Trump. I've been talking about at the national political level. Maybe you could throw in uh, Josh Howley, at least on this particular aspect of economic policy. Selena Zito, our friend, uh, writing at WashingtonExaminer.com, three words will decide Trump's fate in November. Made in the USA. Or actually made in America, because made in the USA before years. Three words will decide his fate, made in America. And she uh, writes, as the future of the laborers who don't have the luxury of working from home is decided by the people who do, Manufacturing, job creation, and made-in-America products will increasingly decide who wins in November rather than the latest Twitter outrage. That may be something where there is more agreement than one might suspect across the political spectrum. Joining us to discuss is John MacArthur. He's a publisher of Harper's Magazine, author of The Selling of Free Trade and You Can't Be President, The Outrageous Barriers to Democracy in America. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Um, so is uh, Selena Zito onto something when she uh, describes the landscape? She got onto something new. I mean, that's why Trump won in 2016. I am firmly convinced, and the numbers back it up, that NAFTA and the lesser-known permanent normal trade relations with China are what brought uh, Hillary Clinton down in those three crucial states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. These were deals made by the Democrats Clinton, initiated by President Bush, to be fair, the first President Bush, but completed with great enthusiasm by by Bill Clinton that cost the country millions. We don't know exactly how many, but millions of pretty good, higher paying industrial jobs that went to Mexico and China. Since we're talking Democratic Party politics, let's not forget that Chicago was one of the epicenters of the pro-NAFTA push, Rahm Emanuel himself was a major lobbyist for the Clinton administration, had a lot to do. He's all, he's all over my book. Um, you know, here, here's the thing. I mean, what's in it for them? It's who they serve. That's that's what you get to. And Scranton Joe has a problem, John, and I know you're uh, a man of the left, so this must upset yeah. you. He's got a problem, as you point out in your uh, very good piece in The Spectator. Uh, he voted for NAFTA. He voted for permanent normal trade relations with China, repeal of Glass-Steagall. These are not uh, votes that are going to set well with uh, those Scranton, Pennsylvania voters. Right, but also very bad. He's the father of the bankruptcy bill, which makes it harder for people to declare personal bankruptcy and get protection from creditors in court because he was the servant of the uh, credit card business that's based in Wilmington, Delaware. They used to call him the senator from MBNA. 
and, and right now with mass unemployment and people being pushed presumably into personal bankruptcy or into dire straits, this bankruptcy bill, which, by the way, is what got Elizabeth Warren into politics because she was so angry about it. This is going to hurt Biden if Trump uses it. I mean, I don't know if Trump is quite up to using it, but I think so far he's been, uh, I mean, tweeted very loudly after Bernie Sanders was knocked out of the race or had to was pushed out of the race. All of you disaffected Democrats, in effect, come to vote for me. I'm the one who stands up to the Chinese or I stand up to the business interests on uh, and to the two parties, to some extent, on trade issues. And this is where, as I say, it's extraordinary that Trump in many ways can run to the left of Biden on trade issues. Mm. And on some other things, too. You make the point that uh, Trump has been a bit of a big spender. uh, And certainly that's true. Now, I think this is a little bit different, the pandemic matter, because it's sort of a you broke it, you bought it situation. This is disaster relief more than just deficit spending to grow government for its own sake, which happens a lot. And oh, by the way, under previous Republican administrations, including George W. Bush. So it's not like this is necessarily new territory. The scale of it may be because of the scale of the policy impact of shutdown. But I, I concede the point. Trump is more transactional than he is wedded to any particular philosophy. Yeah, uh, I don't think he's a deep thinker. And I say he's a hypocrite, of course, in the piece. He, he likes cheap labor when it works for him. It's not clear how, how deep his commitment is to helping the working class or the working man. On the trade yeah. stuff, Biden is terribly vulnerable. Right. And, and the hypocrisy abounds. I mean, the same people would say, uh, hey, those people in this country illegally are working and they're getting jobs and they're supporting their family, then leave them alone. So, I, you know, the, the hypocrisy just sort of uh, ricochets throughout the beltway, I suppose. I wanted to get. Yeah, to- and Warren, and, and look, Elizabeth Warren is, is running for vice president. Uh, Biden, as I said, is his bankruptcy bill is what got Warren angry and pushed her into politics. But Democrats didn't want a real reformer like Bernie Sanders. They didn't want somebody because Sanders takes the left wing position against NAFTA and PNTR. And he and Trump are very much aligned on that subject. And um, Chris Arnotti, the uh, Wall Street Journal or the Wall Street Journal, not Wall Street financier turned uh, photojournalist, I meant to say, um, has an interesting uh, review of a couple of books from uh, liberal academics. And I guess Nick Kristoff and his wife are columnist academics. But anyway, and he uh, makes the point that uh, they don't get the point exactly about those that uh, don't have a path to obvious success and self-sufficiency in America. He uh, writes, you don't have to go far to see people stuck on this ladder where they can't get to an upper rung. You don't have to leave the Acela corridor. You just have to get off the Acela. The pain and despair that fills so much of America fills large parts of Bridgeport, Baltimore, New York City, Hunts Point in the Bronx, just miles from some of the most elite colleges, has a shooting gallery, a bridge above the train tracks. He's talking about the neighborhood in the Bronx. And he talks about the books saying, you know, they've done a nice job of of quantitative analysis from afar. But when you do that, only the people impacted individually lose their voice and collectively their agency. They risk becoming data to understand, not people to listen to and learn from make it harder to understand why they may do things that better educated readers and researchers wouldn't. And I wonder, um, I remember after the 2016 election, the the Nicholas Kristofs of the world were running around saying they're going to get out into America and understand why people voted for Trump and how they could have been so wrong and what they're missing. 
you know, and that lasted a couple of weeks, and then they returned to their uh, comfortable spaces, and they write these books as Arnati references sort of from a distance and as, as somebody diagnosing rather than somebody trying to understand, learn from, and react accordingly. And that seems to me like uh, a big problem that the leftist intelligentsia that portends to speak for so many of these downtrodden individuals continues to suffer from. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, the point is... I, I did the report. It's not that hard to find out what working class people are thinking. I did it in New York. There was a stapler factory, uh, the Swing Line Stapler Factory, moved from Queens to Mexico while I was doing my book. I followed the the move, and it was a straight straight up NAFTA outsourcing, not outsourcing, a move move to a cheap labor environment. I'd done reporting in Ohio with. Uh, uh, Autolite spark plugs. Uh, that company in uh, Foscoria, Ohio, moved to uh, uh, Mexicali, uh, and I talked to these people. And they're not all white, angry white people. They're also unhappy Latinos and uh, black people and uh, Chinese immigrants and uh, Eastern European immigrants and so on. There's all sorts of people who've been hurt by this. Uh, and it's not just in those three industrial states that I was talking about, uh, across the country. Uh, it's in Albany, Georgia. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the casualties of NAFTA and PNTR are just, are littered all over the place. So it doesn't take, if you're an elitist reporter, a universe, what I call university sponsored, approved liberal, you don't have to go very far to find people. Uh, who were hurt by NAFTA and uh, PNTR. And the fact that the Democratic Party gave the shaft, uh, or the Clinton Democratic Party gave the shaft to the working class, and that the Obama administration, Obama knows. Remember, Obama campaigned against Hillary Clinton on NAFTA in 2008 when it suited him. And then once he got into power, he went along to get along with the Wall Street people and the the fundraisers, uh, because a lot of this was done just to raise money. Clinton realized this was a great way to raise money from uh, banks and corporations that previously didn't give money to the Democratic Party. So it's, it's just the evidence is so obvious, and they just don't want to look at it. They want to face it. They nominate Joe Biden, who is the uh, quintessential, uh, what I call in the piece, in the spectator piece, neoliberal Democrat, Clinton Democrat. He is John MacArthur, publisher of Harper's Magazine, author of The Selling of Free Trade and You Can't Be President, The Outrageous Barriers to Democracy in America. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, the uh, debates rage on as do the competing studies. A uh, quantitative strategist for J.P. Morgan, Marco Kolonovic, virtually everywhere infection rates have declined after reopening, even after allowing for an appropriate measurement lag. This means that the pandemic and COVID-19 likely have their own dynamics unrelated to often inconsistent lockdown measures that were being implemented. Another research paper released uh, in early May by a uh, academic at uh, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, 
found that lockdowns in Western Europe had no evident impact on the epidemic. Comparing the trajectory of the epidemic before and after the lockdown, we find no evidence of any discontinuity in the growth rate, doubling time, and reproduction number trends, according to the author of that study. The flip side is uh, Bill Galston writing in uh, Wall Street Journal about uh, the prospect of America having followed the Swedish model, where uh, schools stayed open for young people, K through 12, gatherings of 50 or under were permitted. Uh, most of the shops, restaurants, bars, nightclubs remained open with social distancing guidelines. He points out, well, right now, Sweden's uh, fatality rate is 30 percent higher than the United States. And it didn't save its economy with the Sweden's economy projected to shrink by seven to 10 percent in 2020 in line with its Western European neighbors and uh, perhaps slightly worse than the United States. So um, what, if any, lessons are to be learned and uh, what do they tell us if they there are lessons to be learned about what the decisions going forward should look like? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jacob Sullum. He's a senior editor at Reason, Reason.com. Jacob, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Sure. Well, um, so we've got those competing studies on uh, the approaches that were taken and trying to assess them sort of in real time. And uh, also in real time, we have all kinds of uh, revisions, uh, revising and extending remarks. Uh, You wrote about uh, the fatality estimates that were revised down by CDC. We also got last week, of course, the the new report from CDC that uh, transmission via services of the virus, via surfaces of the virus, not so easy after all you know, the hits just keep on coming. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is emerging evidence that begins to answer at least some of these crucial questions about the virus that were completely unanswered at the time that lockdowns were imposed. I think lockdowns were imposed because politicians felt like they had to do something. The costs of the epidemic were very clear. The costs of lockdowns were less clear uh, and are becoming more and more clear. And the threat posed by the virus, or, you know, our view of that, has to be modified in light of the emerging evidence. And the the CDC's recent estimate is that 0.4% of people who not only get infected by the virus but develop symptoms, so actually have COVID-19, 0.4% of them will die. Now, they also say that their best estimate is 35% of people who are infected won't develop symptoms. So if you combine those two estimates, it implies that the fatality rate among everyone, and we're talking about Americans specifically, that among Americans who are infected by the virus, the fatality rate is less than 0.3%, about midway between 0.2% and 0.3%. And just to put that (laughs) into perspective, the rates that were assumed in those worst-case scenarios that we were uh, seeing back in March where they were projecting you know, millions of deaths in the United States if drastic action wasn't taken, they assumed much higher infection fatality rates in the range of 0.8% to 0.9%. That's two or three times as high as the rate suggested by the latest estimates. And that, of course, has dramatic implications for what the cost is of not acting. You know, Of course, not acting at all was never really an option, and that's, that was another problem with those projections is they assumed the people would just carry on as usual, right? They wouldn't change their behavior in response to the virus. So that was never realistic, right? Well, people, well yeah. People... And, and, and one of the things, too, is, I mean, thinking about what we know now, like you're talking about in, in the data that you broke down in your piece, boy, if we would have known that um, uh, for 50 and under, the fatality rate is going to be half the rate of the seasonal flu, it right. rises to, to uh, 
0.2%, just a little a, a bad flu season for 50 to 64. And then we have the 65 plus category where it's more severe and more dangerous. If we would have known that, if we would have known in Sweden, they haven't had one fatality under the age of 60, which is rather remarkable. And that the focus should be on nursing homes and congested areas where people who have comorbidities or are older are more likely to be found. I mean, we couldn't think or argue today we would have made the same decisions, could we? Well, I think the relationship between age and the risk of dying from COVID-19 has been known for months. Yes. But it is quite dramatic. I mean, according to the CDC's estimate, the mortality rate among people 65 or older who get COVID-19 is 1.3%. And that's 26 times as high as the rate among people younger than 50, and I think six or seven times the rate among people uh, in between. I guess I should say that age may be largely a proxy for pre-existing medical conditions. Right. You know, those are independently correlated with the risk of dying from COVID-19. And as you get older, you're more likely to have uh, these uh, pre-existing medical conditions. So as we uh, prepare for the possibility of a second wave, perhaps a likelihood, uh, many doctors argue, uh, and, but we don't exactly know the severity you know, what is that what is that middle way that contemplates uh, all that we know at present? What does that look like? To well, you? I, I think this may seem obvious in retrospect, but it was not obvious to the governors in New York and New Jersey at the time is you need to protect people in nursing homes. Yes. Nursing homes and similar facilities account for about two fifths, more than two fifths of the deaths in the United States. And the policy, which has since been revised in New York and New Jersey was if somebody had COVID-19, they would send them back to nursing homes, right. which seems insane in retrospect because the nursing homes were not well equipped to isolate those people. And so you have these outbreaks within nursing homes that kill a lot of people. So that's one thing to avoid, right? That seems obvious. Florida was much smarter about it. They were very careful not to send COVID-19 patients back to nursing homes. And they have a much lower death rate among patients than New York does. Now, that's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons. So that, that seems obvious. On a personal level, people who are in high-risk groups need to be more careful than, than people who are in low-risk groups, right? So uh, instead of hundreds of millions of Americans being told, you must stay home unless you have what we consider to be a good reason for leaving home, um, you are instead saying, look, if you're a member of one of these high-risk groups, if you have one of these uh, pre-existing conditions, uh, if you're elderly, um, maybe you should observe these rules for the time being you know, for, uh, until either there's herd immunity or there's a vaccine or there's a good treatment. And so it's perfectly reasonable to tell people in high-risk groups, you know, you should continue to stay away from crowds. You should spend, continue to minimize social, social interaction and that sort of thing, but not to imply that everyone is at equal risk and therefore everyone must stay home. I think the other side of this is that those restrictions on young people, right, were people who support lockdowns would say the restrictions on young people were not intended to protect the young people. They're intended to protect people in high-risk groups. The question, though, is what sort of policy is reasonable for that purpose, right? Is it reasonable to tell the whole country you must stay at home because you might somebody in a high-risk group uh, might catch the virus from you, you might not know you have the virus, right? If you have a very large share of, peop of people who have the virus who are asymptomatic, they wouldn't necessarily know they were sick, uh, or they wouldn't be sick at all. They wouldn't necessarily know that they were uh, carriers. Um, so that's, I don't dismiss that. Obviously, that is an important concern. But the, I guess the question is, you know, what burdens are reasonable to yeah. impose on everyone for that purpose. Can we use a scalpel rather than a meat axe the next time around, uh, perhaps? 
Uh, Jacob Sullivan, uh, Jacob Sullivan, senior editor at Reason, Reason.com. Jacob Sullivan, thanks so, so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. listening to the Dan Proft show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft show of VDH Victor Davis Hansen friend of the show writing a national review. Emeritus Barack Obama now and then ventures out to go through the motions of an enfeebled defense for what is becoming an increasingly discredited administration. But his heart isn't in it. His mind is elsewhere. His cause is no longer social activism and community organizing, as if it ever was, means to an end. But uh, Lucre and the perceived well-earned good life. The arc of his moralizing universe is long. But for the anointed like him, it apparently bends toward the just desserts of riches and material bounty. And uh, that says nothing of uh, its extension to uh, Michelle Obama, recently feted by <laughs> by the very production company they set up to uh, house $50 million in Netflix money, feted what she was a documentary about her book tour. <laughs> Not exactly, uh, you know, the end of the tour, David Foster Wallace, when we're talking about uh, films, about book tours. But uh, Matt Mayer takes it uh, one step further. Oh, goodness. Obama should apologize to Trump. Apology. Ooh, perish the thought. Matt Mayer, president at OpportunityOhio.org, contributor to Spectator USA, joins us now. Matt, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, why should an administration that uh, never suffered even the uh, scent of scandal apologize to President Trump? Because they've done wrong. It's clear they've done wrong. And if Barack Obama is the man he says he is, and if Michelle Obama's when they go low, we go high has any <laughs> merit to it, then they should step up to the plate and say, look, our administration, we were wrong. We put you and more importantly, all those people that had to go in front of the House or Senate committees had to be deposed, went in front of the special counsel, had to spend millions of dollars on lawyers, had their lives disrupted. Those people deserve an apology as much or more than Donald Trump. That's politics and politics ain't beanball, we know. But those people didn't sign up to have their lives thrown into the wind, including General Flynn, because Barack Obama and his administration decided to spy on the administration based upon the flimsy of, of flimsy information. And they were wrong. So man up and say you're sorry. Do you expect that uh, President Obama will ever be cornered into saying anything on the topic? He clearly is uh, taking the, uh, you know, hear no evil route thus far. Well, look, if he happens to venture out of the cocoon that is the mainstream media, yeah, I think there are people like Catherine Heritage, uh, Heritage over at uh, CBS News. There are some, some good reporters at Fox News who would ask him the tough questions. But no, of course not. I don't think any mainstream media person would dare ask him the tough questions about the July or January 5th meeting in the Oval Office, right, about what did he know and when did he know it. And, and, and that, that's unfortunate because you know, our system demands and needs accountability and transparency for us to make sure that our liberties and freedoms are always protected. Uh, it's been said by uh, many now, it's almost become a, a Republican talking point, uh, but so I want you to address it. That uh, President Obama, based on what we're learning, the Obama administration, not just him, but his administration, uh, ended a uh, 
two plus century tradition of the peaceful transfer of power. Is that is that too strong a statement or, or do you find that to be accurate? And if you do find it to be accurate, uh, explain it. Why? Why is that? So why did this uh, uh, surveillance, if you accept that it began in good faith, uh, just out of concern for making sure uh, uh, national secrets were secure? Why would this be violence in a sense rather than a peaceful transfer of power? Well, look, because you got to keep in mind what the timeline is, right, and where all this came from, right? Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democrat National Committee paid for a foreign national to work with other foreign nationals to essentially dig up dirt and influence the election. They then went the next step further. The Obama administration did, right, by essentially weaponizing that. And, and that January 5th meeting is so critical because he asked everybody else to leave except the three people that were going to be staying on after the inauguration occurred. And and the whole intent of those three people was to continue to use this information to undermine the Trump administration and to do harm to the Trump administration. That that disrupts the peaceful transition of power where when you lose, you'll walk away, take your marbles with you. And that's the way the game is played. In this situation, the Obama, it's his he was his meeting in the Oval Office with those three remaining people who would who would be holdovers into the Trump administration. They weaponize that information and then try to use it to do the stuff what they then did for the next three years that absolutely disrupted uh, the, 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 the Trump administration's ability to govern, created mass amounts of, of disruption in the American society and created an even greater strain in terms of our civic war we're now under. And so th- th- I think it is irresponsible and it was wrong to have done and he should, he should man up and apologize for it. Uh, when we come back with uh, Matt Mayer, I want to ask if... Um... The personnel uh, consulting on the D.C. COVID-19 response, if they're not a microcosm of everything that was wrong in the two administrations preceding Trump's. More with Matt Mayer, president at OpportunityOhio.org and contributor to Spectator USA right after that. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, we uh, played this clip yesterday uh, in our discussion about uh, reopening the schools in the fall. This is uh, Michael Chertoff, the former secretary for the Department of Homeland Security under President George W. Bush on Face the Nation over the weekend, suggesting um, what he is advising uh, the mayor of D.C. when it comes to school reopening? Well, the idea is, at least in stage one, to have distance learning, have it be done remotely. But then over the next two stages, which mean that we would have basically reduced the uh, outbreak to isolated uh, outbreaks, during the next period of time, we would slowly begin to bring students in. Uh, Those entering transitional grades or needing um, extra instruction would come in first. We'd make sure to maintain distancing in classrooms uh, to keep uh, the collection of people in a particular classroom below a certain number, like 10, to make sure the same youngsters were together throughout the day so you don't have a lot of people mixing with other groups. Collaborating on the uh, reopen plan in D.C., Susan Rice, former NSA to President Obama and pathological liar, as we know, on everything from Benghazi to the Flynn surveillance. Eddie Scarry writing WashingtonExaminer.com. D.C.'s lockdown is miserable, and it's what Democrats want for the whole country. And he talks about uh, the, them being on the precipice of 
entering the phase one of their reopening, even as the mayor announced yesterday for the first time in a couple of months, no COVID-19 related death, not a one uh, on the uh, previous day. For more on this, we return back to our friend Matt Mayer, president at OpportunityOhio.org and contributor to Spectator USA. A Spectator piece you wrote about uh, Michael Chertoff in particular in the context of his consultation with D.C. because you work for Chertoff. So I wonder what you have to say about the unholy alliance of Chertoff and Rice when it comes to D.C. consultation. Yeah, look, you know, I was in the secretary's office uh, with the secretary. He's a very smart man. But look, he is a trained lawyer, former judge. He's not an epidemiologist. He's not a scientist. So, you know, his opinion should carry no more weight than your or my opinion. And in, 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 in this situation, the science indicates reopening schools because kids are not at risk of this very as much. They're, they're at risk as much as they are from the flu. Right. They're just not getting not, e- not even uh, not even. Actually, right. Yeah. Not even right? so there's there have been more flu deaths in America this year than there have for, among those under 18 than there have been from 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 the virus. Um, and, and moreover, focus on protecting the staff and the teachers like Mitch Daniels at Purdue University said that that's going to be their focus when they reopen. But but look, you know, Michael Chertoff, Susan Rice, they are part of that elite bubble of D.C. that are multimillionaires. They don't have to worry about things like, you know, paying the bills, finding child care when their kids are at home and they've just got to put food on the table. They are so far removed from the Main Street America, Main Street Washington, D.C., you know, the people that, you know, they that they have pushed further to the edges as they've gentrified more and more of the district over the last 20 years. Right. Those people need to work. Their kids need to be in school. And we just need to make sure we protect teachers and staff who are at risk because they're obese. They have respiratory issues. They have diabetes. Protect them. But let's get our kids back in school. The, the mental health of these kids needs to be among their peers, enjoying learning and distance learning in this in this system that we've created in the last two months is an utter failure. Kids aren't learning. Uh, it's not doing them any good. And so we're going to stunt the learning of these kids that are already kind of, you know, have a strike against them because they're they're in bad schools. They come from single parent families where there's not the resources that they need to succeed. So the, his idea, uh, I don't know where he got it from, but, you know, look, he's the lawyer just like, you know, anybody else. So I, I say, you know, nice idea, but boy, uh, the science doesn't seem to indicate that neither does common sense. Well, right. And it's also it's just so myopic, you know, so, so many smart people. And I, I can see the point. He's a smart guy, but just so myopic. How can you only look at one aspect of this when you you must realize if you're paying even passing attention how layered and complicated this is. Uh, there was a piece by Kay Himowitz recently in City Journal talking about human beings as uh, and, and human social networks. You know, uh, it's not just viruses that are social. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows, for example, a divorce within your social circle makes you more likely to get divorced. The sort of the shared behavior perspective that happens within various human networks. And so and nobody is even considering as you were sort of intimating, uh, this distance learning, the staggered days, the staggered classrooms, the one group of students stays with one group of students and one instructor and they move around. All of these suggestions to fundamentally alter the way that we educate kids. It's not asking, is this the best way to educate kids? It's not asking, is this the best? Are we are we making sure we're uh, being thoughtful 
about their intellectual development as well as their social and emotional development. I don't hear people asking those questions or much less answering. Well, nobody's asking them, so nobody's answering, but suggesting, you know, we've thought about this and we're going to take these steps consistent with wanting to make sure that we're doing the best we can in the circumstances for the development across all of those planes. No, no, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you're seeing this bubble up across communities, right? You're seeing increased mental health issues among kids, right? You're seeing, you know, I see with my own kids where, you know, they, they're dying to just play with their friends. They're dying to be back in school. Look, when you have a nine-year-old boy saying, Dad, I really wish I could go back to school, you know that that's a problem. No <laughs> nine-year-old boy normally wants to ever be in school, right? right? But he's so desperate to be around his friends and be back to normal, be out at recess, and, and I say, look, the, the data shows that there's low risk to him and his friends. of if, Even if they catch it, it's going to be like, like the flu or less. And then again, let's protect those teachers and staff that might be at risk. And I say, great, states, let's, we, you know, we, we, we did all this regulatory reform to allow doctors to cross state lines and all these other things that allowed us to respond. Here's, here's yet another one. Can we get rid of the, the teachers' union restrictions that prevent someone like me, you know, I've, I've got my law degree, I've written three books, I've taught it at the university level, I'll be happy to pop in there and teach a high school history, civics, uh, and other courses, let me in without having to go get some teacher's degree that, by the way, is probably worthless, and has adds no value to the ability to impact the classroom, let's make it so people like me can go in there, help these help these kids while the teachers that are at risk can't teach, but they can assist on the outside side of the fence, right, they can be outside the building, but assisting those replacement teachers during the period of time that they can't teach. Let's get our kids back into school and get to normal, man. I mean, this we're, we're getting to a sense where we have so devastated the economy. We're devastating the mental health of, of everybody, including our kids. And, 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 and the idea here that we're just going to say, oh, let's have phase one, two, and three, and then we're going to put in you know these kids at this time and only 10 at a time, and then we're going to make sure they can't do X, Y, and Z. I mean, my goodness. The data doesn't support that kind of a response. Yeah. It just doesn't. The regimentation of a technocratic state, it's, it's very dangerous, actually. Matt Mayer, president of OpportunityOhio.org, contributor to Spectator USA. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Take great. care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I got to tell you, I've been fairly impressed with Kaylee McEnany as the White House press secretary so far. I know she's receiving some criticism, and of course, she's being uh, heaped upon with scorn from the D.C. press corps. But she knew that going in; that's part of the job. But I thought she's done a very nice job of jujitsuing very unreasonable, unfair questions from the press corps. Another example of this was presented yesterday again by CBS News' Stephen Portnoy who's really trying to pick up where Jim Acosta left off. When voters go to the polls in November and they want to judge the president on his response to this pandemic, what is the number of dead Americans that they should tolerate as ha- and where they can argue that, yes, he successfully defeated the pandemic? I think, um, you know, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is where did, where did the, the data... And I answered question. your question once, but if you ask it twice, it doesn't make it any better of a question. So I'll respond Ouch. in kind. I've given you one answer. I'll continue to extrapolate upon that, that he always listened to the science. The president, when Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burke said, you need to shut down the economy, that was hard for the president. You know, in a typical year, 120,000 
50,000 people die of suicide and drug overdose. It's in a typical year. And doctors have said uh, when you shut down an economy for an extended period of time, that number gets greater. People don't show up for their cancer diagnoses. Uh, there are a litany of, of results when you close down an economy. But closing down the economy for this amount of time kept us far below the 2.2 million number. And as we start to reopen, we keep in mind the people who are missing their screening appointments, the people um, who are not, who are succumbing to suicide and drug overdose because of economic hardship. This president made the right choice. Uh, it was a delicate balance, and he did it exactly as he should, guided by data. And we are far below 2.2 million dead Americans because of the actions of President Trump. She's, she's very well prepared, and she's on point, and she uh, is ready for the ambushes that will come, at least uh, she has been thus far, and good for her. But Portnoy's question, what's the magic number of deaths? Do you have a number of deaths that you'll tolerate where you'll call your response to the pandemic pandemic success? Such a gotcha baited bull jive question. Is that question going to be put to Andrew Cuomo or Phil Murphy? Is it going to be put to J.B. Pritzker or Gavin Newsom? Of course not. As if there's a magic number. Yeah, if if uh, if it's 100,000 deaths, then it's success. If it's 120,000 deaths, then it's not success or something like that. Number one. Number two, as if we're thinking about that in a political context, rather than just saying, did we do the best we could on the knowledge with the knowledge we had at the time or the things we could have done better? And let's have a full accounting and a full reckoning for that. The good, the bad and the ugly. That's how you judge success doing your best with the information you have in, in, in with with as much transparency transparency as possible while still serving the people who elected you and, and count on you and and you know the American people um, not just the people voted for you know what I'm saying the American people and uh, that's all for us I hope you'll join us to get off to a good start tomorrow thanks again for tuning in to another edition of the Dan Prof show From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.